as Caleb mentioned earlier, I've got uh, two daughters that uh, are in their final days of preparation to leave for YWAM, going to be training and then spending some time in the mission field. Uh, thank you, by the way, all of you who have generously supported them in doing that. Wouldn't be able to, to make this uh, journey without you. Uh, and we're very, uh, very blessed to have church family and family family and friends afar who have uh, supported them in doing this. But it also means uh, since two of my kids uh, have moved out of the house already and two more are leaving next week, it means very suddenly next week we become empty nesters, just overnight. Uh, and uh, I faced that milestone with a mix of pride and sadness. Uh, extremely proud of all four of my kids and the things that they're doing and, and the choices that they're making for their life. Um, but I can't help but be sad. Uh, being my kid's dad has got to be one of my most favoritest things in all of life. It is uh, not merely a matter of I love my kids. I mean, I hope we all love our kids. That's, that's good. But it's, it's more than that. I regard this relationship as a sacred trust. I'm pretty sure that it will be the most important thing that I do with my life. No matter what other ministry functions I have, no matter what other roles I play, I'm pretty sure that being my kid's dad is the thing that I will do with my life that impacts the world and hopefully the kingdom of Christ more than anything else. And so I am proud of them. I am excited to send them on to new adventures. And I hope and pray as they all four go out different directions that I have provided the guidance and the example that they need from me. Most importantly, the guidance and the example to live for Jesus Christ, because that is a life that matters. Now, the world has all kinds of broken ideas about what matters, about what makes a difference. And so we get ourselves focused on wealth and fame and power and pleasure, and the people who accumulate these we regard as successful. But successful in what? At the end of our days, how will we count this up? What will it matter? In Christ, in Christ, we are taught to value things like love and compassion and virtue and character and honor and service. And at the end of our day, these things do add up. They are a treasure. And they will stand the test of time. And so we come to our passage today in our study of Colossians. Verse 20 of chapter 3 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We parents really like this verse. It's a good one. Amen. It's a good one. But we need to remember the context of this verse. This is not just a, is not, doesn't just happen in the, in the midst of this chapter. The, the whole point of this letter is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we've reached this point 
in this progression that Paul is taking us through where he's talking about now the practical things. What does this mean on a practical level? If we are living under the supremacy of Christ, what are the things that we'll be doing in our households? And he comes to this point, repeating a sentiment that uh, occurs in, in Scripture quite often. Children, obey your parents in everything. We understand children to be sacred. We understand this relationship to be sacred. We understand children to be valuable and holy. But why are they sacred? We encounter in our world another deceptive philosophy, and that philosophy goes like this. The value of a child's life is a function of the world's favor. What the world thinks about our children is how their value is derived. I remember the first time that Lisa was pregnant when Jesse was coming, uh, the incredible sense of anticipation that I had. I was on pins and needles. I could barely take it. And as we got closer to the day and the doctor, we're going to see the doctor and he'd say it could happen any day now. All of a sudden, I want to take walks. I don't, I don't like going for walks. Lisa likes going for walks. All of a sudden, I want to go for walks. Not just any walks. Go down to Edmonds, Washington and walk up and down the hills. Because I want this to happen. So anxious, so excited. Waiting for her to come. Waiting for this new person, this new personality, this new soul to make its first appearance. By the time the fourth one comes along, you think this would kind of be old hat. And honestly, for my wife, in terms of going through the process, delivering babies, she got fantastic at it. She could just crank those babies out. She was so good at it, I thought she maybe just keep going. She didn't think that was such a good idea. But I tell you what, waiting for that new person to come never got old. All four of them were a miracle. They all arrived under different circumstances. They all came out with unique personalities. They were all special. And meeting a new soul for the first time was a remarkable, remarkable experience. And through all of that, we knew all four times, we knew we were having a baby. You ever notice that people who are waiting for their baby to arrive never say, oh, we're having a fetus. We don't say it. We don't use that terminology. The world would have us believe that the difference between a baby and a fetus is a question of real estate. What space do they occupy at the moment? That's the only difference. The difference between a fetus and a baby is that one is born and the other is unborn. One is in the womb and the other is in the world. That's the difference. Technology has made it harder and harder for us to accept this premise. As we get a window into the womb, we begin to recognize just a baby inside the womb and then a baby outside the womb. And the real distinction that we're making is not a distinction of real estate. The real difference is does the world favor this child's life? 
The real difference is, is this child wanted? Is this child healthy? Is this child going to be born into security? Or is this child going to be born into poverty and, and uncertainty? I think about generations past and the way that we thought about the poor, the way that we thought about the sick, the way that we thought about the unwanted. Generations past were more honest than we are. They just regarded these people as less than human. They just regarded them as being less valuable, as being disposable. Today, it's unfashionable to treat people as disposable. And so we've come up with a different language for it. Today, we tell ourselves we're doing them a favor. We're saving them from a life with less quality. You see, given this deceptive philosophy, the life of a child, and indeed, really, your life right now, is valued on how the world thinks about you. And so what do we find ourselves doing? We find ourselves chasing after the approval of the world. We find ourselves looking for validation from the world. And we find ourselves killing the unborn. But Psalm 139 says this, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Here is the biblical truth. The biblical truth is that the value of human life is in the image of God written upon it. Childhood is, in fact, precious. But why is it precious? It's precious because it is a life as yet unmarked by worldliness. It is a life that has not experienced the brokenness that hides from us the image of God upon it. It is pure and lovely and precious. And even today, your value as a person, your value as an individual is not dependent on how much money you have. It's not dependent on what job you do or how important you are. It's not dependent on how many friends you have on social media. It's not dependent on how beautiful you are or your athletic ability or anything that the world has to say about you. Your value as a person isn't even derived from your family or the people who love you. We already possess value because the image of God is imprinted upon us and because he loves us. That image might be obscured. We might have hidden it. We might have even held the image of God upon us in contempt but it's still there. And this is why the kingdom of Christ welcomes the unwanted. It welcomes the unvalued. It welcomes the unworthy. 
Because even the least of these bears the image of God upon it. And in Christ, that image can be completely restored. This should be our highest aspiration for our children, that they would live in the image and the love of God. And yet we face incredible obstacles. We have to navigate so many things, so many barriers to that being our children's reality. There's another deceptive philosophy that we encounter in the culture. That is that children possess an innate wisdom of reality. They just sort of know the truth. And if we, if we uh, idiot adults could get out of their way, just let them figure it out for themselves. They'll, they'll find their way. They'll figure it all out. They'll come to the right conclusion. I find that this philosophy is usually proffered by those who really want to indoctrinate our children in worldly thinking. And they find that when we don't teach our children discernment, when we don't teach them values, they're a blank slate and they're much easier to indoctrinate. Say, wait a minute, Doug, doesn't the Bible say from the mouths of children and infants you have ordained praise? It does, in fact, say that. But you know how infants ordain the praise of God? It's not through their knowledge. It's through their innocence. It's through their innocence. It's because in their innocence they reflect the image of God that has been written upon them. And it's because their innocence shames unrighteousness. Their innocence shames the enemies of God. And it also means they don't know anything. I know, right, when I was 18, 19 years old, thought I had a good grip on reality, thought I had an understanding of the world. And I got my degrees, walked away from those schools with a piece of paper that says I am somebody, thought I was pretty smart. I don't know about you, but I'm at a point in my life where I feel pretty dumb, and I can't imagine how dumb I was then. Our children don't know anything. They're a blank slate. They don't have knowledge. They don't have wisdom. These things are meant to be imparted to them. The world is telling them that whatever truth they feel, whatever truth they think, whatever impression, whatever experience they have of truth, that is their truth. No matter if it contradicts with eternal truth or not, that their truth is their reality. The world indoctrinates our children. It tells young people that they have wisdom and understanding that the adults in their life do not have. The world would have parents sit on the sidelines of their children's life, offering them constant validation, but no direction. We have to understand that with innocence, with innocence comes a lack of discretion, a lack of discernment, a lack of wisdom. 
And so you see, what's most precious about our children, this innocence that's, that makes them so precious, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, their innocence, their naivete, is the very thing that makes them readily corruptible when the world gets its nasty claws on them. The truth is that children possess an uncultivated potential to glorify God. We have children in our society today who can confidently pronounce their identity, their gender, their sexuality, who can claim knowledge that they clearly have no experience to have gained, and who freely embrace worldly ambitions, and the adults in their lives will cheer them on. So all this business in our culture about chasing your dreams, we have a very romantic notion about dreams in our culture. Oh, you have to follow your dream. Is that your dream? I'm just following... We watch these, these talent shows on television and everybody's, this is my dream. Oh, you dreamed of doing this. Really? Seven-year-old kid gets on in a competition. I've dreamed about this all my life. Well, that's impressive. It's my dream. Can we, just, can we just back up for a minute and acknowledge that some dreams are garbage? That some of the things that we aspire to, some of the things that we're working for are meaningless? So I'm going to win the approval of the world. The world is going to tell me that I'm valuable. Then what? Some dreams are just stupid. A lot of the dreams that we have are never going to work out. That's a message that you don't hear very often, but come on, this is the reality. A lot of kids in our school system right now are dreaming of playing in the NFL. How many of those boys are going to make it to the NFL? A lot of kids want to, a lot of our girls want to be the next rock star, pop star, diva. How many of them are going to become famous? Not so many. That's okay. Because our value as human beings is not derived from whether or not the world thinks we're cool. Our value comes from the image and love of God. This is what the Bible says. Your value as a person comes from the image of God upon you, the love of God that you possess. Your identity is in your creation by God and your connection to God. And so it should be natural for us to assume that a worthy ambition in life, a worthy ambition for us to have for our children is that they would reflect the glory of God. They would reflect the image of God, and they would live a life that brings glory to Christ. Is that how we think? I'm not sure, because I watch a lot of Christian parents today who are content to allow the schools to raise their children, who are content to allow the church maybe an hour or two a week to raise their children. Christian parents who think that an hour or two of biblical influence in the lives of their children is enough to compete with countless hours of television and internet that they're consuming every week. Parents who sit idly by as the culture 
and their peers are driving the conversation and creating their values for them. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. All the time. I want you to focus for a minute on this idea, this picture of impressing things upon our children. How do you impress a thing? You impress a thing when you get it to take the shape of the original object. So in order for me to impress these things upon my children, I have to take the shape of these things, and then I have to press that shape into my children's lives while they are yet malleable. I catch myself today, I catch myself doing little things that my father did acting like him in social interactions, looking like him. I get, get, a, get a glimpse in the mirror, see my father. Things, uh, traits, habits that I didn't even know I picked up. And I see myself do them, and I think, that was my dad. Somehow, years ago, he made an impression on me that is now emerging. And I think the impression that he made upon my life that was the most significant is he taught me values, he taught me virtue, he taught me love. Love for his family, love for his church, love for the mission of Christ. We have to impress upon our children the things that actually matter and protect them, shelter them from the onslaught of brokenness that the world is constantly spewing at them. Oh, wait a minute. Can't do that. Why not? Well, because there's another deceptive philosophy that says children who are sheltered are naive and unprepared for the realities of life. When Lisa and I made the decision to take our kids out of public school and homeschool them, we heard this all the time. They won't be properly socialized. Because, <laughs> because putting 30 10-year-olds in a classroom together is a nor- normal, natural socialization process. Won't be properly socialized. Well, I, I challenge you to look at my four children. Tell me that they're not properly socialized. They're more social than I am. Here's the truth. I have never found children who were protected, whose innocence was protected by their parents, I've never found them to be unprepared for life. The ugly realities of life, the ugliness of the world, its brokenness creeps in sooner rather than later, despite our best efforts to protect our children from it. But those who have an opportunity, those children who have an opportunity to dwell in innocence a little bit longer, those children who have an opportunity to experience some taste of righteousness, immediately recognize evil for what it is. 
Those who are nurtured on goodness and righteousness have a firm footing by which to fight the battles that they will encounter in life. The culture around us, honestly, at this point, cannot expose children to worldliness and sin fast enough. It is absolutely compelled by this mission. Under the guise that knowledge is power, the world attempts to steadily indoctrinate our children in its own brokenness. Why? Why are we so intent on this? Well, for one thing, some people have a political or a social agenda. And they know that if they can convert enough children to their social agenda, eventually those children will be adults who support that social agenda. But there's another reason, a more fundamental reason, a spiritual reason. It is because the innocence of children shames the unrighteousness of the world. Now, there are two main ways that people deal with shame. There's our way, which is repentance. Have shame. Repent of the thing that causes that shame. It will be forgiven. It will be erased. No more shame. The other way is you corrupt what is innocent so that it's just as shameful as you are and we're all in the same plane. That is exactly what the world is trying to do to our children right now. Corrupt their innocence so that there is nothing pure. And so Jesus says in Matthew 18, 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Here is the biblical truth. Children nurtured on the world's deception often waste their entire lives repeating them. This, the cost is high. How many young adults have we seen embark on a worldly course and we sit behind them hoping and praying, hoping and praying that they figure something out, hoping and praying that they will figure it out before they cause too much damage to themselves, before they cause too much damage to someone in their life, hoping they figure it out before they choose a partner and get married, hoping they figure it out before their children come along, hoping they figure it out before they die. The truth is, if they're listening to the world, they'll always figure it out because the world is a place that is completely jam-packed full of lies, a place where the truth means very little, where what we call facts anymore are not facts. They are cultured. They're cultured facts. They're created to support whatever agenda, whatever narrative we are promoting. If the biblical instruction to children is that they should obey their parents, then we have a sacred trust as parents to give them something worthy of obedience. Coming back to the original passage from which uh, these New Testament passages come, Exodus 20, honor your father and mother, and then you will live a long, full life in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you. Hmm. commandment with a promise. 
Yet there's another deceptive philosophy, one that uh, I certainly believed when I was a child. That honor and obedience are a religious ploy to make children behave for their parents. It's that command that we trot out as parents to prove that God is on our side in the parent-child battle. In truth, it is a call to a sacred covenant, a bond that surpasses mere affection. We, we place a lot of value on, on loving our, our kids. I think if we love them enough, everything works out. That's not quite true. Loving them enough to do something about it is what will help our children. For parents, this command is a call to the sacred. It is a call to be honorable, to provide wise guidance. For a child, for a child, A call to honor and obedience is an exercise in grace, in gratitude, and honestly, in generosity. Honor and obedience are forms of submission, and like submission, they cannot be coerced. We think we force our children to obey sometimes. Really what we do is we just make it more and more inconvenient for them not to obey. Obedience comes from the heart, like submission. Honor comes from the heart. Only the person giving it can make the choice to give it. Honor and obedience can and should be taught. We have to model it. We have to talk about it. We have to outline what the expectations are. And understand this, parents who will tolerate the disrespect of their children are essentially teaching their children that they are not worthy of their respect. But ultimately, to honor, for children to honor their parents is less about the worthiness of their parents than it is about the worthiness of God. The truth is, honor is a demonstration of personal faith. Children who learn to own and show honor will, in fact, live a long and good life. It is a principle and a practice that will serve them well. Because honor not only shapes the one who gives it, but honor inspires the one who receives it. And so living with honor is a recipe for a long, full life. And that life is one that pleases God. It is one that is in the image of God. It is one that dwells in the love of God. And it is one that restores the order of God.